Jim and I have been teaching uh, with the help of Ethan on Wednesday night from the book of Galatians and then preaching from it on Sunday morning. And chapter 3 of Galatians is really a, a high note for the book. It's where Paul brings everything to one loud exclamation point. And it's hard to overstate the significance of what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3. So for those of you who may not have been here on Sunday mornings or here on Wednesday night, let me just bring you up to speed. Paul has said that if you are baptized into Christ, that you have clothed yourself with Christ, and that you have become part of the promise of God that was made all the way back in the 12th chapter of the first book of the Bible. After everything had fallen apart, after the perfect creation, the good creation, had gone to pot, in Genesis chapter 3 with Adam and Eve's sin and mistrust in God, in Genesis chapter 4 and Cain killing Abel, in Genesis chapter 6 and the flood, in Genesis chapter 11 and Babel, God steps in in Genesis chapter 12 and He says, Okay, Abraham, I'm going to use you, an old man, a nomad with seemingly no future, no no." No one to inherit any of his stuff. And God says, let's start all over with you, Abraham. Through you, I'm going to bless all nations of the earth. And Paul's claim in the book of Galatians is that if you have been baptized into Jesus Christ, you are part of that story. Abraham's story becomes your story. God's redemptive work to to put the world back together, to... To fix what has fallen, you now step into that. And the significant part of that is, is Paul is saying it doesn't matter if you're Jewish. And it doesn't matter if you're Gentile. What matters is if you are in Christ. Now that's his theological argument. The practical side of that comes in verse 28. Because if you are in Jesus... There is no more Jew or Greek. There is no more bond or free. There is no more male or female. We are all one in Christ. Now, Jim may or may not have talked about this last week. I didn't get to hear his sermon. But a lot of scholars think that what Paul is doing is he is playing off of a very familiar Jewish prayer that even to this day is uttered in Jewish synagogues in their morning prayers. It's a prayer that sounds something like this. Blessed are you, O King, O God, God of the universe. Blessed are you who has not made me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. And Jewish males would pray this, and they still to this day will pray this as part of their morning prayers. And Paul seems to be saying, in Jesus Christ, that prayer makes no sense. Because in Jesus Christ, there is no Jew, Greek, bond-free male or female. Do you realize the impact? I mean, this, you can't overstate this. What Paul is saying radically revolutionizes every culture through every age in every place. Because we've, we've developed systems and worlds that's uh, an us versus them. We like to know who's in and who's out and who's, who's like me and who's not like me. And Paul is saying, if you're in Jesus, none of that matters anymore. It changes your identity. 
It changes your neighbor's identity if they're in Christ. It changes who you spend time with. It changes, for the argument of Galatians, it changes who you sit across the dinner table from. It is hard to overstate the significance of what Paul is saying here. And so after he said that in chapter 3, he moves on to chapter 4, trying to get people to understand the significance of that. Trying to, trying to get them to understand what an incredible thing that actually is. And so what Paul does is he reaches into this bag of metaphors and he starts pulling out images and, and examples, trying to get them to understand just what's going on. And, and he pulls out so many of them that they start to bump into each other. They, it doesn't make sense necessarily. He's just trying to get them to feel and to see and experience what it means to be part of the Abraham promise, part of the Abraham story, part of the redeemed story of God working in this world. His first metaphor. It's like, he says, it's like someone whose father has died. But they're too young to actually deal with the inheritance. And so that inheritance has to be entrusted to somebody else to keep and to watch until that person comes of age. Listen to the example as Paul words it. Chapter 4, my point is this. As long as they are minors, they're too young. As long as they are minors, they're no better than slaves, though they are the owners of the property. It's your inheritance. It's coming to you. The check has your name on it, but you're too young. But they remain under guardians and trustees until the date set by the Father. So it is with us. While we were minors, we were enslaved to the elemental spirits of the world. Now, I wish I could tell you exactly what that was. I don't know. Most scholars don't either. Some think that it's just this basic concept of how the world is structured. And, and so the religious practices of the day were in some sort of subservient service to these things or other people think it's it's the uh, the spirits of the outer world and, and we live our lives doomed to that Paul says whatever it was you're enslaved to those while you're a minor you ever had one of these dreams that that maybe just maybe tomorrow you're going to go to your mailbox and you're going to open it up there's going to be a, a large manila envelope that says it turns out that you had a rich uncle who died and he left all of his fortune to you. And all of this has been under the curatorship of someone until they found you. Probably not going to happen. But can you imagine opening that envelope and, and it says, You have inherited millions of dollars. One of my favorite movies came out in 2007. It's called The Ultimate Gift. Uh, some of you may or may not have seen this. I loved the movie. James Gardner was in it. James Gardner is this, this grandfather figure who dies and he's got this multi-million dollar estate. And he's going to leave this to his grandson, who's kind of a spoiled brat. And so the grandson, the grandfather wants the grandson to learn responsibility before he just hands him all this money. And the grandson has to go out and learn certain tasks and do so. He actually has to work with his hands, which he's never had to do before. But all of this money is coming to the kid. But he's, he can't get it until it's the right time. I have a life insurance policy on me. I'm afraid to let Delane and the kids know this. 
You know, I'm one of those guys that's far worth more dead than alive, you know. But if something were to happen to me and something were to happen to Delena and all of our life insurance money was made of it, I don't want my kids having full access to that when they're 10 years old and 6 years old. I love them, but look, Nintendo's stock would go way up if Keaton could spend this money. And so if something were to happen to us, it's going to go in the, in the hands of a curator, someone who's going to manage that money and make sure it's used for the... And Paul says that's the image you need to have. That if you are in Jesus, if you've been baptized in Christ and clothed with Christ, under the law, you were someone waiting for the inheritance and somebody else was managing that inheritance until the time came. And Paul says, I want you to know that in the fullness of time, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those of us. Your time has come. Your inheritance is here. Why would you want to, after receiving that inheritance, why would you say, you know what, I liked it better when I was the minor. I liked it better when somebody else managed things. That's the figure, that's the image that Paul first starts out with, trying to say, what I'm saying to you is that in Christ, everything has completely changed. That's his first metaphor. He has a second metaphor. So that we might receive adoption as children. And because you are children, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. Now this is where it seems to me the two, the two images or the two metaphors bump into each other. Because first of all, we are the Son. The Father has left us the inheritance. We're just waiting to receive the inheritance. But then when the fullness of times comes... Now we might receive the adoption of children. Well, Paul, you just said we're already children. And to me, it's like Paul just is, just don't, don't make too much out of one metaphor, because i got another metaphor for you. He just keeps going. It's, it's such a powerful image. Paul says, so you've, become, you've come from being a minor, which isn't much better than a slave. That's what you were under the old law. But now the fullness of time has come, and now you've been adopted. It may be that Paul has in mind that the person guarding the inheritance after the loss of the father steps in and decides, I want to adopt the child. That may be it. Or it just may be that Paul has mixed his metaphors. But whatever it is, they have gone from outside of no inheritance to a very personal, intimate relationship whereby they call God Father. Do you realize how, how powerful it is to be able to say that to the creator of the universe? It shows up in Isaiah. Isaiah will reference God as Father, but it's not typically language you find in the Old Testament of God. So that when Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, you want to learn how to pray? Pray like this. Our Father. It wasn't this grandiose, impressive, verbose address to God. It was a simple, easy father. If you're a father, do you remember the first time your, your child ever said, Daddy? In our house, we're at this constant struggle between Dad and Daddy and Mom and Mommy. Right? There's just something different about this about daddy 
It's this intimacy, this closeness. And the language that Paul is using in, in Galatians chapter 4, he says, get this in your mind. You went from being outside, no inheritance, to calling God Abba Father. Don't let anyone tell you that if you're not Jewish enough that you have no relationship to God. Paul says, I'm telling you, you approach God and say, Abba, Father. You have just as intimate relationship with God as any Jewish person in this church, Paul was telling the brothers and sisters in Galatia. They've gone from outsiders to insiders. From minors to inheritors. It, it was pretty neat when I got back from vacation this week and Keaton and I were running errands and I got a phone call from DHS. There's a young couple, a very sweet young couple wanting to adopt a child and they put me down as one of their references. And so they began asking me these questions. How well do you know this couple? How long have you known this couple? Have you been with them outside of uh, the circle that you normally are in? Have you seen them outside of church? One of my favorite questions <laughs> Have you seen them with children before? That's pretty important if they're going to adopt children. You know, Can they relate to children? One of the most profound questions, though, I thought was, would you trust them with your own children? That's pretty important. Paul says, you have been taken from being orphans to calling the Creator of all living things, Abba, Father. He has adopted you. It's a powerful metaphor. Paul says what happens is, Christ, is that you went from being an orphan to being adopted. That, that God has taken you and treated you as if He were your father, as if you were His child all along. Because in the promise of Abraham, that's exactly what you are. God told Abraham, through you, all nations of the earth will be blessed. And if you step into the waters of baptism by faith in Jesus Christ, Paul says, you come up a child of Abraham. Don't let anyone tell you that you're not a child of God if you by faith have accepted Jesus Christ in baptism. Don't let anyone convince you that your position in Christ isn't good enough. That more is required. That circumcision or Sabbaths or kosher laws are what makes you part of the family. Paul says that's not what does it. What does it is simple trusting faith in Jesus Christ. Don't ever let someone tell you that your past makes you insignificant in God's present. It's a statement of remarkable freedom. You see, he, he's trying to get them to understand what he said in chapter 3 will blow your mind. If you can wrap it around it. It's, it's so, it changes your identity. It, it changes everything about you. It changes everything about everything. And so he's reaching and he's grabbing for one metaphor after another metaphor. And below the surface of this text is Paul's fear. You find it in verse 9. Now, however, that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God, how can you turn again 
to the weak and beggarly elemental spirits. How can you want to be enslaved to them again? If you have come to Jesus, and if you have stepped into the story of Abraham, and if God has made you part of that promise, why in the world do you want to go back to the way things used to be? Back when you were a slave, back when you were a minor, back when you were an orphan. Nobody wants to go back to that. Freedom is a tricky thing. Did you know the Bureau of Justice Statistics says that two-thirds of released prisoners are arrested for a new crime within three years? Three-quarters are arrested within five years? Or did you know that more than a third of all prisoners who were arrested within five years of release were arrested within the first six months after release? And more than half are arrested by the end of the first year? Or did you know within five years of release, 84% of inmates who are age 24 or younger at the age of release are arrested? Compared to 78% of inmates ages 25 to 39? They go back. The recidivism rate. They get freedom. And they go back. It seems puzzling. Or history is filled with nations that was once free and liberated who turn around and begin to follow after a new dictator or tyrant. Why? Because if you've been constrained and controlled for so long, sometimes the freedom feels uncomfortable. You need someone to tell you what to do and where to go and where to be. And Paul's concern for the church in Galatia is that they have come to enjoy and to know this wonderful freedom in Christ, but they want to go back. It is as if the story of Israel is repeating itself. For Paul, this whole story of redemption is the story of Israel lived out, and he uses the same language. Israel was led out of slavery and out of captivity. The, the people in Galatia had been led out of captivity and slavery to these elemental spirits. Israel crossed over the Red Sea and, and Paul says you crossed through the water in baptism and, and now the, the redemption that Israel has is the redemption that you have. Don't make the next mistake that Israel made. Remember what Israel did? Exodus 14, they get out of Egypt. They cross the Red Sea. Exodus 15, they have this beautiful prayer of Moses thanking God and singing to God about what God has delivered. Exodus chapter 15, at the end, they start complaining to Moses. Exodus chapter 16, they start saying to Moses, why didn't you just let us die in Egypt? You know, back in Egypt, we had it so much better. We had these pots of meat back in Egypt. Really? You were slaves in Egypt. And you want to go back to Egypt? Well, yeah, because we had meat. <laughs> had to be the men. We had it so good back in, in slavery. And Israel whined and complained, and at some point in their life, they thought slavery was better than the freedom God had brought them. You see what's happening, Galatia? Paul is so worried 
that having experienced this freedom in Jesus Christ, having crossed through the waters, having been made neither Jew or Greek, bond nor free, male or female, that people are going to say it was so much better back in slavery. And Paul says, I am worried that all of the ministry and all of the grace that you've received will have been in vain. Now, Galatians chapter 3 is a remarkable text with remarkable implications. Paul wants them to understand that in Jesus Christ they are free. That in Christ they are accepted, that in Christ they are children of God, and in one image after another image, Paul says, I'm afraid you don't get it. You see, the Gentile Christians had been told the opposite of the story Paul tells here. They had, they had grown up with pagan, godless backgrounds, many of them, and, and they had come to Jesus Christ. They had grown up a far distance from the Jewish lifestyle. A lifestyle that was marked by rigid law-keeping and kosher foods and Sabbath-keeping and Torah-toting lifestyles. And they were being told that if they were going to be accepted by God, someone there was telling them this, they had to do more than confess Jesus as Lord. They had to do more than put Him on in baptism. They too had to be circumcised. They too had to keep kosher laws. They too had to honor the Sabbath and, 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 you can't do enough. Maybe you've walked into church and you've been told the same. You've been divorced too many times. You've had too many children out of wedlock. You made too many mistakes. You walked away from God. You did too many terrible things. And yeah, you can come to church, but you've got to sit in the back. And no, you can't be fully accepted. And Paul says, if you are in Christ, you are heirs according to the promise. Don't let anyone tell you that Jesus Christ isn't enough. Don't let anyone tell you your past is too big of a blemish for the blood of Jesus to erase. Don't let anyone tell you you can't sit among the children of God as a full inheritor of the promise of Abraham. If you are clothed with Christ, you've been adopted. And you too can cry out, Abba, Father. It's like a slave set free, a child who has come of age, and a child who has been adopted. The commentator Scott McKnight wrote, Legalists are led by law. Hedonists are led by their desires. Materialists are led by their possessions. But sons of God, Christians, are led by the Spirit. What prompts their actions, what stirs their emotions, what guides their behavior, what determines their careers is God's Spirit. Sons of God, do not fear and do not worry about where that Spirit will lead them. You are a child of God in Christ. When I was finishing 
classes at Oklahoma Christian, one of my professors assigned us to go spend a day down at the juvenile detention center just off of 63rd and Classen. So three of us, myself, Luke Hartman, and Michael Jones, got up early in the morning and went to sit in court. And as we arrived at court, we talked to one of the ladies there who was over the, uh, this particular courtroom. We said, we're here for an assignment. We're supposed to observe these proceedings and watch the different cases and write a report on ministry implications. So she went to Judge Stewart and she explained to the judge, these young men are here to watch court. And in a crowded courtroom, Judge Stewart pointed to the back row where we were seated. And he says, you boys sit here. He put us at the attorney tables where we had a good view and a good sound of everything that happened in that court that day. Young men and young women up to the age of 16 walked before the judge. Some of them were there for the first time. They were, they were caught in crimes, and the, the judicial system said they need to be treated like minors, and so they stood before the judge to hear what would happen to them next. And case after case, one young man was caught for drug possession. One young man was in a car that had been stolen. One young man was there for, for uh, stealing some things from a grocery store. One young man was there for fighting, and, and one young lady was there for fighting. And, and the, the cases and the stories of brokenness, just passed before this judge all day long. They came, some of them, in orange jumpsuits and handcuffs, minors. And the judge said, I demand that any kid that appears before my bench, there has to be a parent or guardian with them. Because that, that kid is not the only one suffering. But even though the judge demanded that, there were too many kids who stood alone. There was no guardian with them. We sat at that attorney's table taking notes, being good students, we thought. And the judge decided to take a recess. And he stood up from his bench and he said, you three come with me. You guys ever seen Ernest Goes to Jail? I thought that was about to unfold. He welcomed us back into his chamber. He sat down on the couch and he began to talk to us about everything he sees every day. And then he looks at us and he says, Where are their preachers? Where is their church family? Well, we said what we were supposed to say, we thought. Well, they don't come to church. If they don't come to church, how can we minister to them? That was his trap. Why are we only ministering to people sitting in this room? We talked for quite a time. It was an interesting experience. And as their conversation came to an end, he said, I've got to do something next that I wish you could see. But because of laws and, and everything involved, you're not allowed to see it. I get to do an adoption to close my day. We, we couldn't sit in the room, but we stood outside the room. And the body language of the people exiting that courtroom was far different than what we had witnessed the rest of the day. 
Because when that courtroom door swung open, out walked parents and a child who had been adopted. And they were all smiles. Interesting twist of irony. About two years after I sat in this courtroom and couldn't watch the adoption, I was invited to go with Dennis and Christy Doherty to witness that adoption. And it was the same judge. And he was right. That's a far better thing to witness. Those are the images Paul is pouring out in Galatians chapter 4. There's the the minor child standing before a judge who has, who has made every mistake in the world and someone is trying to help him and someone is trying to govern his life. And Paul says, that's who you are under the old law. And then there's that image of the judge declaring that you are now this person's child. And Paul says, that's who you are in Jesus Christ. Don't go back. Don't go back to letting other people judge you by standards that aren't found in Jesus Christ. So this morning, my invitation to you is simply this. Be in Jesus Christ. Put on Christ. So that there is no boundary to determine your significance before God. That that line that you cross when you put on Christ in baptism, it severs Jew and Greek, bond and free, male or female, rich and poor, and every other stigma that peoples of the globe have tried to put on us. Paul says, no. If you're in Christ, your heirs according to the greatest promise ever made known. And we want to invite you to do that this morning. If you've never put on Christ in baptism, today can be the day where you become an heir according to the promise to an inheritance far greater than any ever offered before. And we offer that, that invitation together while we stand and sing.